Well, today on The Yarn, we've got Jason Flinsky, and who better to talk to us about the intersection of business and politics than Jason? Now, Jason has had a very interesting career, uh, having been a politician, but also having been successful in business. And when he was in parliament, he was working on a lot of enterprise-focused issues like tax and revenue and the like. So, Jason, good to see you. Oh, Braggy, not as good as it is to see you, mate. How are you going? Thank you very much. Oh, I'm not bad for an old fella, but so tell me, turn it up, turn it up. So tell me, what have you been doing since the election? Mate, a couple of things. One is I started a business called Cognito Ergo Viditor, which of course, being a Latin scholar, you will know means I think, so I shall see. And then there've been a couple of businesses under that. One is in-home care, which is called ProCare, a short stay company that's helping People manage their rental properties better and online called AirTrip. And a third company, which is a, a database company, so software driven, called OmniTrend. And what about the second one? Does that is that sort of involved with the NDIS or anything like that, or is it totally separate from that? No, it's so we've just gone through. So we started it in May or no, not May, of July, sorry, of 2022. And it is I still don't think NDIS has approved us as a provider yet, but probably three weeks after that, we started our application and the audits happened. So it's just sitting with NDIS and then the audit with my aged care starts soon as well. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because the NDIS is going to be one of the biggest areas of spending growth over the next little while. Uh, I wonder whether it's something that the country can afford in the way that it currently is designed. Well, mate, we can't afford not to be a compassionate society, but at the same time, we can't afford the level of waste and mismanagement inside NDIS because that is draining resources from people who most need it. And unfortunately, I have to say, over the last 10 years, we had a series of ministers who were very good at ensuring the scheme was largely kept on track. But I think since the last election, you know, it's just got completely off track and the waste inside it is just is just extraordinary. And I mean, I don't need to tell you. You go walk into any pub on the northern beaches or any barbecue in Belrose, and there'll be someone who's got a story about someone who's earning, you know, extraordinary amounts of money off the NDIS without actually doing anything. And I think it's, yeah. it's a huge problem for the country. Yeah, that's why I asked you because every second person I meet going around New South Wales is currently working for the NDIS. So. It's seemingly becoming the biggest employer in Sydney. So Julie Owens was the labour member for Parramatta. She was my deputy chair on tax and revenue, but she and I got on pretty well. And she used to say, you know, in the 90s, the people moving into all the fancy offices with all the marble were the banks, and then it was the law firms, and then it was the, you know, PWCs. And then he said, but in the 2020s, it's NDIS providers. They're the ones with the swank offices. And she just and she'd look at all of us and say, that's got to tell you something. And I think she's right. Yeah. So the question is how that can be. And let's see. I mean, it's a big test for Bill Shorten for him to run in this parliament. So what have you. Yeah, mate, it's, it's not a hard thing. You, you run it for the benefit of the people who need the care not for the benefit of the unions. And at the moment, Shorten's just running it. He's paying back the advocacy groups that campaigned against the Morrison government, against the Liberal Party, 
and he's running it for the benefit of the unions. And the people who are really suffering in this order are the people who need the service, followed by the taxpayers who are funding it. Yeah, well, I mean, the Labor Party has been very good at running its government mainly for the benefit of its favourite vested interests and fellow travellers. That is some sort of a talking point that the Liberal Party members have always talked about, but the reality is it's coming true, isn't it? I mean, they actually are reverting to type. Oh, mate, this country is now is now getting very close to, you know, some of those Eastern European countries after the after the Iron Curtain came. It is run for the benefit, you know, people government doesn't exist to serve people. People exist to serve government under this regime. Yeah. There's a guy called Stephen Jones. Do you know him? I've met Jonesy. I've met Jones. Yeah, Jonesy. So he I think he's the he's my favorite minister in the government because he is the one that is most obviously working for the very hardworking industry super funds and the union officials. And he won't work for anyone else. He won't work for the Australian people. He will only work through the laundry list of issues of these particular groups. So uh, he's a gold medalist, I reckon, so far. What do you think? Mate, I agree with you, but I, I also want to defend Jonesy here. It's hard for those industry super trustees. I mean, eating that much crab before 11.30 can be hard. Washing it down with French champagne is difficult. And these things don't come easy. These things don't come easy, Braggy. And of course, as we now know, they were in cahoots with APRA, revaluing their unlisted investments so that they looked best in class. And I just, I mean, look, part of me is like, I just can't wait for this to all come undone as people realise that they were dudded. But at the same time, I don't want to be around where people realise how badly dudded they've been. And Jonesy's making it worse. Helped by the Greens, helped by the Teals, you know, these bastions of integrity and transparency, when it comes from industry super, can't run fast enough. Well, when you stand back and you look at the nation's great challenges, I mean, one of the greatest challenges is the problem of industry super fund trustees not knowing what Cristal is. I think that is one of the greatest problems that's beset the nation in recent months. Oh, so uh, The vintage edition 73 or 78. It's a tough one. It's very true. It is. So, well, look, obviously Jones is, you know, he's doing his, he's doing his job there. I'd, I'd say, though, I mean, David Pocock was instrumental in knocking off Jones's first act as minister, which was to cover up the, the payments from the super funds to the unions. And I think at the time, I mean, talking, I mean, this is sort of pillow talk here, but Talking to some of the Labor ministers in the Senate, I mean, I think they were just like, well, why, why are we doing this stuff? I mean, the senior ministers in the Senate were like, why is our first act in the Treasury portfolio removing transparency so people can't see where the super money is going? Well, it's called donations, Brad. Yeah, I know. They've been crystal. 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 I'll never be on. You might be able to be on a super fund board. So that's good. So you've recently been elected as the New South Wales Liberal Party president. Can you tell me a bit about that internal election? What was that like? It was like every election. You know, they're not the they're not the most fun things in the world. And you often feel like, is it me running or is it this is it this other person who's been made up in the minds of people? But 
you know, I've got to say it was a pretty civilised election and I think the issues are effectively, you know, we haven't been communicating our values. We've given in too often to, to the left on their issues. We haven't, and our campaign infrastructure is completely outdated and needs to be massively, massively uh, dragged, kicking and screaming into the 20th century. I mean, maybe we can get it into the 21st. I don't know. That'd be interesting. But I think the, the primary thing is the organization needs to reset its purpose and needs to be clear about what it's doing and why it's doing it. And I think when you've got purpose, you have direction, and that gives you energy and momentum. And they're, they're the things I'm trying to bring to the New South Wales Division. So I think there's one pivotal question that the listeners will want to know who are real political insiders, and that is, you know, what is your reading of the landscape? Because there are two kind of competing views that exist in the Liberal Party. One view is we're losing votes and people on our right flank. And the other view is we are losing seats and votes into the centre to the Labor Party and the Teals. Of course, the former is you know an argument that we're losing seats and people to One Nation and Mark Latham. So what is your kind of take on that? Uh, well, my take on the we're losing votes to One Nation, you, can I please come to the maths class that you attend? Because clearly... Numbers of things that we can just make up. They're like, they're, they're fun drawings. We can use cartoons and maybe crayons and be very creative. So I, I really want to know how that maths works thus far, is that in the Australian community, there are people on the right wing of the spectrum um, who um, you would divide into um, a group that is concerned, um, which we could, would call aspirational voters, and a group that we would say... Um, are more uh, are post-materialist voters. So they've, they've made enough money in life that they don't need to worry so much about material matters to do with material. The Liberal Party has been chasing votes on the left in the materialist section. And that's helped the National Party a lot, and it's helped us in Queensland, but it's hurt us everywhere else. So the job of the New South Wales Division is, I think, to refocus on our base which is people who are on the right of the political spectrum, who both have aspirational concerns and post-material concerns, and that's where we're going to pick up a lot of votes. And I think there's a, I think there's a misperception amongst a lot of liberals that teal voters are right-wing voters who have post-materialist concerns. I can tell you from personal experience and also from a lot of research in fact, a lot coming out of the ANU, that most Teal voters are left-wing voters who are post-materialists, you know, who, who believe that communism was given a bad rap. I mean, one of, my, one of my friends up here stood on a polling booth with a Teal supporter who said to him, you know, what communism really wasn't given a fair go. What was wrong with communism? And Will said to him, well, I don't know, maybe the gulags. Maybe the slave camps, I don't know, one of those things. You know, mainly the millions of, tens of millions of peasants that died um, due to collectivisation, but that's who you're dealing with the teal. So I think there's a massive opportunity for the Liberal Party, and you and I have talked about this a lot, in that voter category, because no one's looking after people who are effectively pro-market, who believe that the economy needs to be well-managed, 
and that the answers to most of our problems can be dealt with through market solutions rather than through government intervention. Okay. So in effect then, what you would be asking the Liberal Party, the parliamentary party to deliver you would be a set of policies that focus on economic challenges rather than a whole suite of policies that may be uh, more sort of in the culture war bucket. Oh, absolutely. I mean, there is very little doubt. I mean, Tony Abbott said it best when he said, when environment becomes a moral slash cultural issue, we lose. When it's an economic issue, we win. So when we're talking about we need to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide and greenhouse gas emissions into the atmosphere, and we need to do that through market mechanisms, then we're winning. That's a clear win for us. When Zali Stegall and the Teals and the Greens and Labor run around talking about more government intervention, more subsidies to their donors' investments, I might add, when you want to know why emissions went down under the Liberal Party but have gone up under this government, it's because under us, we actually did a lot of good stuff in terms of getting emissions down. Under them, it's been they've done a lot of good stuff for their primary donors. They're massively conflicted. So, and that's the story everywhere. And the other point that I'd make, Braggy, is that our voters and the people who want to vote for us just want to see good outcomes for their children and for their communities. And so we have we have retreated and retreated back into the core equity, as, as our pollsters call it, of economic management. We are better on education. We are better on health. We are better on infrastructure. We are better on industrial relations, we're better on economic growth, we're better on opportunity, we're better on hope, and we're better on getting people out there so that they can live their dreams according to them. That's the start. We've got to actually stop being defensive and start being assertive about what you know what the economists call humanity's greatest idea, which is liberalism. And we've got to start applying it to all these roles. I mean, Mate, I was surprised in the last poll that Josh, mostly to get me off his back, asked me to have a look at the housing crisis in Australia. So I thought, oh, well, I've been, I, that, that's a hospital pass if ever I've been given one. And within like three weeks, the numbers just added up. Like it was, it's clearly supply. The Greens, Labor and the Teals have created this problem by opposing any, I mean, the worst cause of the housing crisis in Australia comes down to one person and one person only. And her name is Clover Moore. Clover Moore. And she is, what she has done is evil. It is evil what she has done. And so that bit has to be taken up. But what we found was we went, oh God, every housing interest group, every taxpayer funded advocate, every council is going to come and whack us over the head and say, how dare you tell the truth mm. that it's housing supply. Well, as you know, every every corner pet store these days has got a galah talking about housing supply. So, it, you know, they, their arguments can be defeated by the truth. We just have to actually go out there and be willing to stand up for the truth. And I think when we apply our ideas to all these problems in society, all of a sudden you've got people coming back to us. And that's what we need to do. It's very clear. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, the development of a housing policy that looks at supply and demand is going to be one of the most important pieces of policy that the parliamentary party deploys. 
now you're leading the organizational wing in the biggest state. The electoral position you inherit, though, I would have thought is better than a lot of people. What do you make of the state results, particularly in the seats that we were not successful in at the last federal election, those inner metropolitan seats? What's your sort of take on the state results there? So I'll take on the state results. So the biggest difference, by the way, between the federal and the state results in New South Wales was at a polling booth in Mossman, which is in Zali Stegall's seat, where the difference was 33%. Yeah. 33%. She is history. She does not represent her community. Some recent polling done by the conference in that area showed on issue after issue, people disagree with her stance. So she's a completely unrepresentative of her community, very representative of the Teals, very unrepresentative of her community. And so my sense of the situation is that a liberal government, as in the classical liberal government, will wipe the floor in New South Wales if it wishes to do so. The question, the reason we lost in New South Wales, it's sad to say, is I don't think that there was enough energy put into selling some of their good policies. And set, um, secondly, there was a bit of detritus around after 12 years, which should have been managed better. And thirdly, and this is you know the bad news for the, par- the federal parliamentary party, there was still a lot of hangover from the federal election in May 22. There was still a lot of people saying to me, I mean, I helped fray a leech a lot in years. No, sorry, are you talking about the Morrison factor there? Yeah, yeah. So I helped Freya Leach a lot in Balmain. She's, mate, she's a, a star of the future. And Balmain is an area that we should be focusing on because it's not a labor area anymore. And you talk to people on the street, mate, and you talk to, and Freya would talk to them and I would talk to them. And they would say, that's, yeah, we vote for a liberal party that you two represent. But then they would say, but we changed government in May and that was a good thing. And that, that led to good things. And I think we can't start our campaign six weeks out. We have to start now. We have to unexplain to Australians what the problems are, how it's hurting them, and why they're not getting fixed. And, you know, and frankly, that's what the Teals did to us. You know, they did it over and over again for three years, and we didn't respond, and we got what we deserved. Yeah. I mean, I think it's important to separate the leader of the day from the party brand. I mean, obviously in the last election, the leader was very unpopular and that pulled down the overall vote. But there's nothing wrong with the brand, as far as I can see. If you look at the state results in the inner metro seats in particular, I mean, you're looking at a primary vote there of, you know, as an average. And even in, I think, in Vaucluse, I think Kelly Sloan got a primary vote of over 50%. But I, look, I totally agree with you. But it is interesting, you know, I'm thinking of two people that we, that Freya and I were talking to in Balmain, yeah. literally were able to differentiate between the Liberal Party of Don Perrottet and the Liberal Party of Scott Morrison, you know, their perceptions of it. And they're far more inclined to vote for a Don Perrottet or a Gladys Berejiklian. I have no doubt that Gladys Berejiklian would have won that election in a canter. Um, so that's why. And, you know, what has happened is John Howard put a lot of time and energy into chasing votes in that left-wing materialist quadrant, 
which is what helped us become so dominant in Queensland. But that brand of politics doesn't translate well into New South Wales, South Australia, Victoria and Tasmania, and you could argue into Western Australia as well. And that's where we need to just rebalance on what's going on. So it sounds like you're, like me, a bit of an optimist here. So what are the challenges then for us rebalancing and getting a bunch of seats back in the next election? What stands between us doing that? Lack of activity behind which there's a lack of energy. So the solutions to these problems are all well known. And spoiler, it's not pre-selections. You know, just putting a candidate in the field without a campaign to back them up does not solve our problems. But there are people around who want to help. There are, we have better ideas. We just need the mechanisms to sell those ideas, to tell those stories, to connect with the Australian people much better than we have been. And it's not hard to do. So we just need to get on with it. Okay. So, so now you've been out of parliament for a bit over a year, almost a year and a half. What is it that you miss and what is it that you miss? I don't miss Canberra, to be honest with you. And I did miss my family, so spending more time with them has been great. And I think the calls on people's personal time, uh, I mean, you know, to be asked by your community to represent them in your national parliament is an honour and it is an act of public service. So there is sacrifice in that, and I'm not complaining about that. But I don't miss being away from my family as much as I would. I thought you were going to say Pep 11 was either the, your favourite thing or your least favourite thing. Oh, mate, can I tell you, and I said this on the record, and I'll say it on the Pep 11, you know, I've worked for five years to get that thing cancelled. And let's not forget that it was a licence granted by Bob Carr, renewed by Tony Burke and Christina Keneally, cancelled by Scott Morrison, but Keith Pitt, mucked around for so long on it, and, and deliberately he had no excuse for what he did, that the Teals were able, you know, Zali Stegel was able to take credit for it. I'm here to tell you, Zali Stegel did nothing. And the minute I'm not there, guess what? Labor's put it back on the table again. So they'll have Pep 11 again. The Teals will run around saying we're opposed, but actually it happened under that. Well, I mean, I remember talking to you about this a lot at the time. By the sounds of it. <laughs> Probably too much. And we were both of the view that, uh, yeah, the minister had made a decision that he wanted to probably progress with PEP 11. I mean, no one in Sydney wanted PEP 11 to happen. I mean, you didn't want it. Sharma didn't want it. I didn't want it. I'm trying to think who else was there. I mean. Oh, Trent didn't want Trent it. Trent didn't want it. Weeks didn't want it. Yeah. Yeah. No one wanted it. So, by the way, Zali had nothing to say about it until the end. When she could take credit. But she had nothing to do with it. She had nothing to do with yeah. it. But, but the, the point is that none of us wanted it, but we were convinced that we were stuffed because the minister wanted it. And then we woke up one day and it was magically cancelled. Yes. Well, as you, I mean, you're making out like, oh, this just happened. But Braggy, you know how much work went into it. That was not, that didn't just happen. You're right. It pit desperately wanted it to happen, even though his own agency was saying, don't do it. And so we we prevailed. Common sense prevailed, Blumland. Yeah, well, it was a very interesting process that led to the cancellation of the license, though, I mean, probably an unconventional approach. 
which I, I think actually next week the Senate will be debating the the requirement to table when people are sworn into certain portfolios. So I think that's probably quite a good improvement. Yes, yes, that might work better. Yeah. And tell me, I just want to talk about some personalities before we finish up because, you know, you are, well, I think one of your great qualities is you are a great personality. Um, and one of the things which is, I think, a bit sad about politics is that often there are periods when there aren't enough personalities. And I think that really diminishes the, the whole thing. Tell me about your, some of your, I mean, I, I don't want to ask you who, who are your least favorite personalities, but I will ask you, who, was, who are your favorite personalities that you encountered in, in Parliament? Oh, mate, there's so many of them. Tim Wilson and Trevor Evans, yourself and James Patterson. On the other side, Greg Perrett. I mean, I really, I love Perrett. Milton Dick, who's the speaker downstairs, as you guys call it, up in the Senate. He's great value. Terry Butler, who unfortunately lost her seat, uh, she's great value. Scotty Buckholz, mate. If you want a good night in Canberra, a wholesome good night, I add. Scotty Buckholz is the person to talk to. He And Scotty and I have a love of fountain pens. So we bonded over that. Look, I'm just trying to, I mean, there are just so many. I mean, the first time I got elected, probably the first call I got after I got elected was from Nola, who was the chief whip at the time. And basically it was like, oh, oh, so nice that you got elected. Well done. Anyway, we have a one-seat majority. If you miss a division, I will rip your arm off and beat you to death with it. And I just thought, this is going to be fun. So have you have you participated in this ABC documentary? I have not. Yeah, so one of the things they do in this documentary is they ask you at the end of the session to give one-word answers to to certain people that, that they list. So. I thought it could be fun if we we kind of sign off with that today. What do you think? Sounds right. Okay. Well, I'm just going to ask you about the about the leaders that were around when you were a member. So Abbott, oh, determined. Next, <laughs> Morrison. Morrison committed. Albanese. Oh, Albo. Not what I know. This isn't one word. Not what he appears. Now, it's got to be one word. How do you say that in one word? Fake? Yeah, fake, probably. Yeah. Okay. That's good. So that was a really good discussion today. We wanted to make sure that this podcast is about politics and business. We've talked more about politics today because, frankly, it's a bit more interesting and Jason is new in the job. So, Jason, thank you very much for gracing us with your presence on the yarn. Braggy, always happy to be here.